The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. It's time to face the music. It's your day in court with a people's lawyer, Bruce Hagan and attorney Ray Judice. Welcome to another episode of Your Day in Court with renowned lawyers Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice. Today we'll jump into why is there a second Ahmad Aubrey trial? Why is um, Sarah Palin, why was her lawsuit dismissed? And we'll get into workers' compensation claims from the employee's perspective and the employer's perspective. First, I want to introduce you to Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice and let you know how to get a hold of them. In case you need their legal expertise, Bruce. Great to be here as always. Um, if you have an issue with a personal injury claim, you can call me anytime. It's 404-522-7553 is the number. We're there 24-7 to take the calls. You can email me or go to our website. The website is hagen-law.com, H-A-G-E-N-law.com. Bruce at hagen-law.com. Ton of great information there that's useful for anything you might need related to just understanding your rights and knowing knowing uh, what to do if anything happens to you. And just like with Ray, uh, he and I, between us, we figure we've got something like 72 or 74 years of legal experience. If there's anything you need that doesn't really fall into our areas of practice, get in touch with us anyway. We can certainly either talk you through it or put you in touch with the right person to handle something like that for you. So please reach out if you need anything. Ray Judice, attorney at law, trial lawyer. 404-964-4185. I just gave you my cell number. It's on all the time. Answer it on the weekends. Answer it at night. I don't know why I do, but I do. (laughs) It's because what the job requires. It does. You know what? And just like like Bruce, you know, I love my clients. I love the relationship with my clients. I like to help my clients. I like to take a problem and make it better. And I've been doing it for going on 36 years in a a row, I like to point out. No major major interruptions. Located in Roswell, Ray at Ray G. Law. And we'll start out with Sarah Palin. She was uh, on trial. She had filed lawsuits against basically the media, the New York Times, and uh, said that they had defamed her. And that case was dismissed. But it was interesting the way it happened because it was basically in the jury's hands and the judge then dismissed it. So it's it's a uh, a different way of seeing something like this come down. Why did it happen that way, Bruce? Yeah, and, and it is a very unusual way, although it's it's something that has happened. I've seen it in some of the cases we've handled. I'm sure Ray has as well. The underlying issue uh, goes to a New York Times editorial that was published shortly after um, the shooting that took place where um, several people were shot and um, killed and injured, um, including the Gabby Giffords, who had the traumatic brain injury, um, and what the Times had written or an editorial that was published in the Times basically said that Sarah Palin helped to fuel this atmosphere of gun violence because just prior to that shooting, she had published a map with Democratic 
districts, know, faces, districts, and, yeah. and, and, you know, with, with a, a crosshairs like uh, that you'd have on the site of a, mm -hmm. a weapon. And, and so, and so that, that spurned this sort of violence. So Sarah Palin claimed that you defamed me and um, sued the New York Times. Uh, as Ray can explain, you know, it's, it's a high standard that somebody has to prove uh, when you're a public figure and you are bring claim for either libel or slander, uh, we call it defamation, it's a very high standard you have to meet. And the judge in this case felt that none of the facts that were brought forth during the trial could meet that standard. Yeah, back in the early 60s, uh, New York Times v. Sullivan, United States Supreme Court case, it basically set the bar very high if you, especially as a public figure, in other words, someone who benefits from publicity, who seeks publicity or has been thrown even inadvertently against your will into the public, into the media, into the newspaper, you have to show actual intent and malice on behalf of the media outlet. They have to really say, hey, you know what? We know this is wrong or we know this is not exactly right, but boy, we really dislike this certain politician or this athlete and we're gonna, basically a schmear campaign, mm -hmm. defamation. So the bar was set high, and that standard uh, in the Supreme Court, it's called stare decisis. Am I pronouncing that, that correctly? Yeah. Better than you've pronounced some other words oh. uh, that you bungled on this show. But, well, yeah. I, I, but that's why I checked with you before, before we went any further, okay? And, and Don't that, pull any punches, Bruce. Just <laughs> say it like it is. And, and it kind of means, you know, the law is pretty settled. That's what it kind of means. It means it, uh, a really extraordinary set of different facts or changes perhaps in the culture would have to occur, and I, and I think they have. So I will make the argument that Times v. Sullivan should be changed, but oh, wow. we, we can talk about that later. The, you know, there's been case law for 50-something years. So the case went to trial, a jury trial in federal court in, what, is that the Brooklyn District or the Manhattan District in New York City? And basically, and this is now we sort of get to the nuts and bolts of court procedure, they had a trial, and the defense in almost every civil case, civil lawsuit, the insurance companies in Bruce's case will stand up and say, Judge, we make a motion for summary judgment. We make a motion for directed to verdict. They did not prove the minimum threshold necessary for this case. What they're trying to say is to go to these 12 crazy jurors who may give Hagen a million dollars on a lousy case. Right. And, and, and you're essentially <laughs> saying th there's no dispute for the jury to have to decide because what a jury's job is, is, is to determine disputed facts and, and to look at facts and weigh them and decide the facts one way or the other. And based on those facts, then there's a recovery under the laws that exist. So now at the end of the presentation of all the evidence, they have the ability to say, judge, the facts are all out in the open. And based on the case law as we know it, and here's the law, and they'll argue over it. But based on that, there's no fact that is in dispute that even if proven to be in Sarah Palin's favor would support a recovery under the existing law. And therefore, it's your duty to dismiss this case and not allow it to go to the jury. The judge did that. What I found to be very unusual here is that this happened while the jury had begun deliberations and they didn't inform the jury that this had happened. They, they're waiting for the jury to render their decision because the judge felt like, well, we know, I, I know that my decision is going to be appealed and the outcome of what the jury decided may be helpful to the parties as they decide whether or not to appeal and whether to try to reach some sort of settlement even during the pendency of an appeal. I found it to be extremely pragmatic on multiple levels, meaning by the judge. 
So often the defense will make this motion for summary judgment at the close of the plaintiff's case, basically saying, Judge, the plaintiff, Mr. Hagan, he called all of his witnesses, his doctors, he put his photographs into evidence, he called the police officer, uh, you know, the, the, we saw the witness, the victim in his soft collar and on the <laughs> having his spine manipulated by the doctor, and there's still no evidence. Sometimes a judge will say, I'll take it under advisement, put up your case, Let's see what happens, because sometimes the defendant can help you prove prove sure. the plaintiff's case or at least get it to trial by creating a question of fact. Smart defense lawyers say, judge, we have nothing to offer at this time. Right. <laughs> right. Right. OK, so here's what the judge is saying. He's saying, listen, this may be close. I'm going to grant the defendant's motion to dismiss the case, but let's get guidance from the jury. So the jury comes back 11 to 1 in favor of Miss Pallon. Judge may say, well, you know what? <laughs> Maybe they've seen something I didn't see and grant a motion for new trial, correct? Or sure, an appeal. Something, something like that. Kind yeah. Of. So, yeah. No, it, 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 it makes sense. I think it'd be frustrating if, if you were a juror to know that we went through this exercise on the case. That I'll has disagree with you. I think I, no, no. Uh, I'm even, even though, well, no, I don't actually, the disagreement I'm guessing is they want to yes. be able to have this conversation. Or they and say, they, we've been here for three weeks yeah. and you took the case away from us. And I'll tell you something. It's, it's odd. I had this happen once to me and um, before we ever got into a courtroom, there had been a motion filed same idea. It's called motion for summary judgment filed saying the facts aren't there to support a theory. Judge, don't let this case go any further. Throw it out on summary judgment. And the judge disagreed and said, no, I'm going to allow this case to go to trial, meaning there's something here that's a disputed fact and the trier of fact needs to make a determination on it. The judge doesn't rule on the facts, right? The judge not giving not giving any opinion on the facts. Well, then we go to trial and I'm telling you, the facts came out exactly the same as they'd come out as they were presented in the summary judgment motion. And now the defense files their obligatory motion for directed verdict before it goes to trial because they have to do that to preserve their rights on appeal. But it's the same argument that they had lost on summary judgment. Well, now the judge grants it on, di on directed verdict. And so, and so I protest and I say, judge, these facts are identical to the facts that, that you already had. And the judge says, well, I had to observe these witnesses saying it for themselves for me to be able to weigh their credibility. And I said, judge, the fact that you said that is showing why you needed to deny their motion because it's not up to you to weigh the credibility of the it's witnesses. The jury's That's call. exactly the jury's That's right. Good province. Point. And so and did had, that work? Well, no. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> the judge already decided that. <laughs> but you felt that. great about that, argument. I felt great. <laughs> I, I, I was right. The judge was wrong. <laughs> and nice. had it been a better case, and by that, I just mean a case really where at the end of the day, we we stood to gain something. It would have been a perfect case for appeal and it would have been overturned. But you have to make financial decisions when you're deciding on appeals. And at this time in my career, I was trying any case that came along. And I think, you know, a victory in that case would have been a $10,000 verdict. It would have cost more to get the and it court cost, reporter's transcript yeah, for the it, appeal. It, just, it was not practical to appeal it. In the criminal case world, at the close of the state's case, in every single criminal case that's ever been tried in this country, the defense lawyer stands up and makes what's called a motion for directed verdict of acquittal. Meaning, judge, same theory. You don't need to let this go to the to the jury. And we're the defense. We don't have to put anything up. We, we can't, in the defense of this case, it's not our job to help prove or carry the state's burden. So, therefore, we're not going to help them out. Right. And they didn't meet. Normally, those motions are based on not proving the essential elements in each element 
of the indictment or the accusation. Starting with venue, did the crime occur within the county that we're here in Fulton County, or was it in Riverdale, which is kind of right on the line? Oops, we checked the zip code, Judge, halfway through the trial. It should have been a Clayton County case. Well, that's a directed verdict. There's a different procedure for that. Basically, the trial should have never happened. Mm. Okay, so it, so it's, oh, never mind. We'll start again. Sometimes you can argue that you got past a certain point in the trial, and it's double jeopardy. So... Same process in a criminal case, except the difference is a judge will not let a criminal case as a general rule go to a jury just to test the water to see, see how they came out. Right, right. And these are things that, that is people, double jeopardy, by the and, way. And people may call these technicalities. Like, yeah. you know, they got off on a technicality, but realistically, this, these are constitutional real, mandates. The you know, these, these are evidentiary rules. There's, it's not a technicality. It's the law. There you, you know? go. And, and we do have laws that have to be followed. There was a question that Bruce's wife brought up that I think a lot of people may have about the Ahmad Aubrey case. Case. The uh, the uh, man was murdered in Brunswick, Georgia, and the people who murdered him have already been found guilty. Why is there another trial? We'll answer that question for you and discuss it next on Your Day in Court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice here on Extra 106.3. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save, and save and win. Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacey's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. This is your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 1063. Welcome back to Your Day in Court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 106.3. We're going to get into the Ahmad Aubrey case, the murder of Ahmad Aubrey down in Brunswick, yeah. Georgia. Why in the world is there a second case? And Bruce's wife actually asked this question to him, and I think there's probably a lot of people that may have the same questions about what's going on. And if you have questions about anything that we talk about on the show or wish that we were talking about on the show, reach out to us on Twitter. You can find Bruce at Peeps Lawyer, P-E-E-P-S Lawyer, at Peeps Lawyer. You can find Ray Judice at Ray Judice, G-I-U-D-I-C-E. And you can find me at Tug Coward. Just tweet at us. And any questions you have, any statements that you have, anything that you uh, think we said correctly or incorrectly, you can yell at us. You can question us. We're just glad to uh, to have your uh, interaction with us on social media. 
during your day in court. And if you do have a question, we'll answer it here on the show. Again, at Peeps Lawyer, at Ray Judice, and at Tug Cowards, how you do that. All right, down in Brunswick, Georgia, Ahmaud Arbery was murdered by Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryant. That is already settled. So there is a second case that a lot of people are wondering why. And I understand that it's the federal case, but why do they need to go back and retry a case that they already have a verdict for? Well, it's not the same case. Okay. The case in Brunswick in the Superior Court of that county, I think it's Chatham County, uh, was about murder. It was a murder case. There was a self-defense claim. Mm -hmm. Jury ignored that or decided it wasn't strong enough for self-defense and convicted these three gentlemen. And the judge sentenced them to at least 30 years in custody in a state prison. That's very important as to what we're doing here. Now, at the same time, there is a federal civil rights trial. Mm -hmm. That is a trial that says that these three these three guys, I'm not going to call them gentlemen. They, they, I think the jury has stripped them of enti entitlement to that name. Uh, killed him, but violated his civil rights in doing so. This case was set for trial about two, three weeks ago, but the family of the victim did not feel that they had enough input. And under federal law, there's a victim's advocate and a victim's rights uh, law. And they wanted the trial. They want a trial. They want a jury to find these three guys guilty of violating their son's civil rights as well. And the real, as I understand, sort of the inside baseball was that these three guys were willing to plead to the federal civil rights violation, but they would spend the next 30 years of their life in federal prison rather than the state of Georgia prison. And I can tell you that that is a huge difference. Yeah. You want to be in the federal prison, you, right? That's a, It's a better, unless a better it's, experience, unless it's, if you will. Unless it's one of the supermax prisons. Yeah. <laughs> but your standard federal prison is safer, cleaner, better medical uh, just the only difference would be you might not be in a geographic area close to your family for visitation. That would be mm -hmm. the only difference. And if you felt that you, your clients might get hurt by people in the Georgia prison that took this personally, like other criminals, mm -hmm. you might want to get them out of the state system as well. So the family objected to that aspect of it. The judge agreed and put the case on trial and a jury was seated, I think, Monday morning of this week. Right, and uh, it should run about uh, 10 to 12 days is my understanding. I would say so. Again, this case is a little bit different. You don't have a self-defense claim. You don't have to get all the ballistics evidence in. It's going to be much streamlined. The lawyers basically have the, uh, the ability to look back at that other trial, read the transcripts, know what the witnesses are going to say. You're going to be a heck of a lot more prepared. And, of course, the U.S. Attorney's Office, who are the federal prosecutors, I'm just going to let everybody know they're always prepared, always. They're really good. If your name is on an, a federal indictment, United States of America versus you, you can rest assured that the feds have done all of their homework, crossed their T's and dotted their I's before they even indicted you. Yeah. So, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but but this is a different case, you know, being that it's a hate crimes case, mm -hmm. and 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 you know how do how do you even define that, and how do you prosecute that? You're essentially having to get into the mindset of what these folks were thinking, what their motivations were, um, and it's a different kind of trial. And and there's different reasons for it. You know, I mean, look, society-wide, it's one thing to say that, yes, yeah, somebody who commits murder, even in a South Georgia town where the jur jury pool looks more like the folks who were charged with murder than the, folk, the, than the man who was murdered, um, that they still get a conviction for murder in that jurisdiction. Well, now you've got a totally different case 
involved in their motivation and and the importance of it that you know we the federal government are here to say that we will not tolerate these sorts of crimes motivated by uh, hate based on a person's religion, based on a person's skin color, uh, and and these protected categories of, of your protected classifications of human being, right? So it's a different case. It's a it's a difficult case to prove. Ray is right. When you have a there's a reason federal prosecutors have these great percentages of winning. You know they don't lose cases because they are so well prepared and they bring the cases that they know they're going to get convictions on. You know what? By the time raised there with his clients and they're accused of something, the, the volume of information against the client can be overwhelming. And so you have to look for other ways to try to um, fight back, such as improper gathering of the evidence, you know, would be enough. Technical, right? technical issues. Yeah, technical you, you violated the rules of evidence. You, 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 you violate somebody's Fourth Amendment rights, whatever it might be, there's something there that, that's beyond just let's look at these facts and decide whether crimes be committed because you're almost always going to lose on that basis. So here it's, you know, what were these guys thinking and did this killing happen because Ahmad Aubrey was black? So it allows them to go into um, text messages and emails and state and of mind, witness statements, evidence, hearsay evidence that might not have been admitted at the murder trial because now you're proving. Not did they take the shotgun, chase them, and the gun went off. It's why were why did this even evolve? An example would be, let's say there's a um, an email exchange between one of these guys or something on Facebook with somebody they knew, and they're saying, you know, man, we have a problem in this community with black people committing crimes. Somebody needs to do something about it. You know that that may never have been admitted in the murder trial, but it very well could be admitted in this trial, and especially if they didn't describe them as black people, but used a more vile racial term, right? That would absolutely come into evidence and be a critical piece of evidence in this federal hate crimes trial. So, so it's a much different case. And, and there was an effort at reaching a plea deal. Uh, when we did one of our shows recently, we talked about that, that there had been an announcement of a plea deal being reached. The family of Ahmaud Arbery was um, very much against it because they wanted these issues fleshed out in court and they and they it's not that it's up to them but they wanted the chance to hear this evidence be determined and have a jury decide was this racially motivated as opposed to just folks who um you know killed Ahmad Arbery for some other reason now, now the only thing and I, it's not my right or position to second guess the family or the judge however if there was a guilty plea the judge would not have taken the plea it would have sounded like this sir do you plead guilty and admit that the homicide and murder of this young man was based on race and hatred? And he, the answer has to be yes, Your Honor. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, that that's the – rather than they, – they may still never admit it just because the jury thinks they did it. That's To me, that's still not the same as it as, coming out of their oh, mouth. Yeah, I, and a judge has to believe it, by the way. Right. Okay? So, but that's their right, and that's our system. I want to say one other thing about going to federal court. Uh, let's say you're defending somebody in federal court in any kind of a case, a financial fraud case. There's all these PPP loan cases that are coming up. Yeah, so no here's kidding. here's what the, the prosecution, the federal prosecutor's witnesses sound like. Uh, but to call the stand, Your Honor, IRS 
Agent Smith. Agent Smith, take the witness stand, swear to tell the truth, yes, I do. Tell us about your background. Well, I have a master's degree in accounting right. from MIT. Hmm. I have a CPA. I'm a licensed attorney. I speak four languages. I was a sharpshooter in the 82nd Airborne. All Pretty right. impressive. All right. Pretty <laughs> and, impressive and every fella. juror in, in sits up straight and says, would you please marry my, my yeah. oldest child? <laughs> yeah, right, and if right, not, right. can I adopt you? You know. Right. And so you start off rough. I mean, there, yeah. there's never, very rarely does the, the federal prosecutors, the only time they put up a bad witness, when they've got somebody who's rolled, meaning and either an unindicted co-conspirator who cut a deal and the deal has to be revealed to the to the jury isn't it true that you're testifying in lieu of light treatment which may be t- may be determined at the end of this case depending on how good you did on the witness stand <laughs> okay right. so uh, they're highly motivated to roll on the guy sitting next to you yeah no doubt about it and uh, so where do we see this going because uh, I, the the reason I I think Maybe Bruce, your wife, had the questions because I, I think maybe I do too. Is that, I mean, you the, the case is already out. The facts are already out. So I, I guess I don't understand, like, what else there is to uncover if, if it's already been established. Well, again, I mean, the difference is if I'm the defense, I'm just going to argue this was a homicide. It wasn't about okay. hatred. It was a homicide that shouldn't have happened, uh, whether or not you believe the self-defense claim. But, but it wasn't based on race. It was based on, hey— We've got a suspicious guy in our neighborhood. We've had a rash of burglaries and break-ins. Somebody saw him inside that vacant house, and we went to, to intercede. Wouldn't it matter to us whether it was white or black, male or female, tall or short, but what happened next was out of our control. I mean, that's that's the defense. Is it, am I right? Yeah, and that was part of the defense at trial is that, you know, these guys were more like um, – more like – Officers, vigilantes, out there, almost. But, but you know, sort of. I, I guess they had a motive of trying to protect the community. At the time, there was, there was the arrest. citizens' arrest okay. statute right. on the books, right? right. So, right. so that the saying we have uh, a right Color and even co- a duty right. to, to act under this legal theory that allows us to go and intercede here because there have been these crimes being committed in this community. Everybody in the community is talking about it, and, and if we and hey, we see something happening here, we can go ahead and act on it. And and that's you know what Ray's exactly right is that the the acts that we took were based on trying to. It's an extension of the crime. castle doctrine. We're entitled to protect the castle and its extension. But now, these have, guys went over the moat. Sure. I get it. I'm with you. <laughs> but having nothing to do with that, we targeted him because of the color of his skin. Right. Now you know. It, they could even be victim to subtle um, racism in, in the sense that, as opposed to overt racism, right? The subtle racism being we saw a suspicious-looking person, right? And, and, and you say, all right, would that person have seemed suspicious to you had they been white? Well, if, they, if, if it comes out that, well, the only reason I really thought they were suspicious is because they were black, that's really not enough to convict them on the hate crime part of this thing. It has to be that we stepped in and took this affirmative action of committing murder, uh, because of the color of his skin. And and so it's a different case entirely. And that's why it, it's worthy of being tried. It's worthy of our federal system devoting the resources to it. You know, w- whether it could have been resolved by plea deal or, not, deal or not, the idea that we have these federal civil rights violation uh, cases going to trial is just different than the underlying the, crime that was committed. Ultimately, the, like the line of questioning is going to be completely different then, right? Uh, overlapping, but, okay. but again, what you're trying to prove is in the case in Savannah, the, the state prosecutor in the Superior Court did not have to prove 
that this was based on race. Mm-hmm. They, they, they actually made they a point of staying away from that. In fact, they, that. She did, the uh, prosecutor did a fantastic job, which was criticized, by the way, by many people watching the trial. But she did a fantastic job. The U.S. attorney has got the exact opposite job. They have got to okay. prove it. And this may be a case where it would be appropriate for your clients to actually take the stand and say, I'm, I feel horrible about you know what happened, but... It was only to protect the neighborhood. It had nothing to do with him as a young black man or anything else. We don't harbor that hatred. We love every... I mean, there'll be other evidence that you can adduce if this person, these guys, I don't know, did they go down and build a Habitat for Humanity in an underprivileged neighborhood? I mean, I think you can you can maybe show the opposite sure. and push back. I don't know that any of that evidence exists, and no, I'm not sure, saying it does. But I'm saying that the case is going to be fought on a different battleground I got it. than the initial it's murder case. Yeah, and in today's world, it'll be you know what news media do they watch what websites are they on what what comments are they making on social media anything that kind of goes to establish a pre-existing mindset is fair game in a trial let's quickly talk about jury composite the jury in the homicide case in brunswick was from that county and i want to say it's chatham county every juror had to reside in that county in the northern district of georgia federal court that starts right about here in Northern Cobb and extends almost right up to what's that little well, county? Because I th- I thought these guys are in the Southern District. They're in the Southern Georgia. District. Okay, well it's the Southern half yeah. of the state. Then. This trial's in the Southern District. All right, but, so, but still a, a broader, a much base. broader. So yeah. you're going to have folks that live at St. Simon's Island and the Cloisters, and you're going to have folks that live next to Jimmy Carter out there in farm territory. Uh, in the criminal case in the Superior Court, it was apparently the composite was 11 white jurors and one African American juror. Apparently, there are three African-American jurors on this jury, and, and the remainder is, is Caucasian. Don't know the sex rate, gender breakdown. Uh, usually, you have at least two alternates, I would say, if you're going to have a case that's going to last a couple of weeks. And uh, I, don't, I didn't read whether or not the judge was going to sequester the jurors. Did you pick up on that? I didn't that? see that. There are four al- alternates. Four, okay. uh, there's three black jurors, one Hispanic juror. Um, and there are, and of the alternate jurors, there are three white jurors and one pacific islander interesting um so yeah and, the, and they're in the southern district down in brunswick is, oh, so is, is okay so so they are drawing somewhat from the same jury pool because that county is obviously the biggest county glenn in that jurisdiction. county glenn county. County. Okay. county right well it's interesting and uh be interesting to see what happens. I mean, this is a trial, kind of a trial lawyer's thing that I'd like to, I'd like to get in there and watch a little bit of it. Do you have, a, do you, can, can you speculate? What do you, what do you think is the outcome? Uh, the problem in this case, from the defendant's standpoint, is when you reverse engineer the the homicide of a young man by three guys who who chased him down the street with guns when they could have called nine one one and said, hey, be on should the lookout have. for right, could have and should have. Uh, I think I think it's I think it's not an in, impossible scenario where a jury says, "Well, what's the motivation here?" Once you start asking what the motivation is, you don't know where it could go. Mm-hmm. And it could easily go to race. Yeah. And one thing I'm uh, unsure of in this trial is: do they start with the open fact that there has been a state court trial and these folks are already committed, uh, uh, convicted of murder, uh, and now you're just only looking at the second piece, or are they also retrying the entire thing of, yeah. you, you know, we're not going to talk about what happened at the state court level, and you have to decide was this murder and was it. You know, a civil rights violation. Well, they're convicted so that's a great question. And, and, so, and I believe that conviction comes the in the state's in the prosecution's case right off the bat. So, the first so, thing I do is wave that that conviction in front of the jury. So, from that standpoint, 
you know, the jurors are charged with listening to the facts, applying the law, right, D- doing their job. But you also have 12 citizens who are being asked to judge three convicted murderers. And, and, and they're human. And, and, and these jurors are human. And so these are three people who have committed a heinous act. You know they've committed a heinous act. They're convicted by other people in your They're community yeah. of convict of committing this heinous act and now you just have to decide was this heinous act based on the fact that they're racist? Was yeah. it racially motivated? And all of this evidence is going to come in to say that they were. It's it's if the evidence is let's say it's a jump ball and and you really aren't sure so so that in in the abstract you might say this probably doesn't meet a burden of proof uh, from an evidentiary standpoint. But the jurors are human beings, know. and they're already looking at these three as you people are scum of the earth. Yeah. You committed murder. That makes um, sense. And, and if there's a if there's a jump ball, I'm deciding it against you. Yeah, now, now so you might have you might have a split verdict here. Uh, the McMichaels, the father and son, I think have a different case than what's the third man in the fight? Uh, here, William Mr. Roddy Bryant. Okay. Now, now I've always looked at him, and and for, yeah, I may be wrong. He he contributed to this. But he just seems like, hey man, what's happening? Can I? Can I? I, I mean, so. I but think, my point I think that's is, partly due to the look on his face. Yeah, right. He always has that sort of deer face. in headlights. But, face. but but you might not in this case, where where in the in the homicide case you sort of got him as a, a conspirator that contributed, and under the felony murder theory, if you helped out, you're in you're in for all. That may be different. He may have had no. I don't know the facts. But he may, his argument will mean, heck, I didn't even know who it was up there. I just saw the McMichaels going after some dude, and they told me to come on, and they're my buddies, and it's my neighborhood, and I never thought about it twice. So I started, so I started filming. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just— Right, I, and, I, and then my lawyer handed that film over to the prosecutor, by the way. Oh, yeah, so it actually could—you're saying it could Before, be, benefit I mean, him. So he, he may take the witness stand and say, worst thing I ever did was follow these two jerks. Yeah, yeah, goodness gracious. Now— this is uh, there's uh, something similar going on up in Minnesota with the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, he was already convicted, and there is a second trial for the other officers that were around him. And and this is another one that is okay. I thought we'd already kind of hashed this out, but uh, apparently this is very similar to the Aubrey case. Well, Chauvin was indicted federally for hate, hate crimes, crime. yep. and he pled guilty, right, and got concurrent time. I don't know the fact as to whether or not he's going to serve that in federal prison, but I'll bet that's where he's going. And quite frankly, the whoever the commissioner of the state of Minnesota's prison system is saying, please, feds, take this guy off my hands. Mm. I, I, the last thing I got to do and spend resources on is protecting this cop who's been convicted of homicide against a young black man from, you know, from the prison system, keeping him safe. So, feds, you take it over. It's your nickel. Uh, Now the three other officers who were there, and if you remember that video, they're sort of positioned in a triangle around a perimeter to keep keep people back and the videotapers back and to make sure nothing else happens. And they've been indicted. And to me, I'm going to always be honest with you, I've always found that to be a very uncomfortable case. Uh, not just as a defense lawyer, but I, I'm like, what were these guys supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I said, I guess the argument is that somehow in courting off the onlookers that they allowed Shaven to finish strangling George Floyd. I, I guess that's the theory of the case. Right, that they, that they 
their failure to intervene and get Chauvin off of Floyd and to, to make sure that medical aid was rendered timely. It, it's, it's about medical care as well, even after uh, Chauvin got off of him. Uh, but the failure to provide medical care, to get Chauvin off of him, that, that this was the civil rights violation that was committed there. You know, and, and both of these cases, you know, being in the hands of a jury, both of these issues being so prominent in everybody's mind, you know, you still have the potential for anything to happen in the aftermath of verdicts here because um, people are still hot about this. You well, know? it comes so, in, in just within last week or so on a no-knock warrant in Minneapolis – uh, a guy who had a warrant out for him for his arrest, and the, and the law enforcement kicked in the door on what's called a no-knock warrant. That means the the judge, and it was the, it, it's the presiding judge from the Shaven trial that signed the no-knock warrant, said you can go in there at night, in the dark of night, quietly kick the door open, throw in a gang, uh, the, the bang grenades and the smoke and everything, and drag this guy out based on this warrant. Well, the guy was sound asleep. He had a gun in the bed. He hears people kicking in his door, and as he got up, they shot him and killed him. And, uh, you know, slice by slice, we have to see what the body cameras are saying. But there's enormous amount of protests, and they've just put a hold on no-knock warrants in that jurisdiction. We had a very highly publicized case here in Atlanta yes, about right. 10 years or so Red ago. Dogs, I think. lady named Johnson, um, sort of living over in English Avenue area yes. and, and 90 years old or something and slept with a gun by her bed and she hears somebody breaking in and starts shooting and uh, gets killed in the in And the a warrant process. was for the, the house next door. Mm-hmm. It was a mistake. Yeah. There was no warrant for her arrest. The warrant was for somebody else in a different address, one or two houses over, and she lived in a, in a tough neighborhood, let's put it that way, and she kept her gun by the side. She came up with a gun, and, and they shot her and killed her. And yeah. that, that, that was a story. piece of litigation that settled for an enormous yes, amount of money. Yes, and that led to some significant changes, and I hope that they've lasted. Uh, you know, sometimes things change while the media is really focused on it, and then as soon as nobody's looking, they go back to the way they always were. But yeah. I think I think that case resulted in some lasting changes to police procedures and no-knock warrants in Atlanta. When we come back, workers' comp claims. Have you ever been hurt at work? What are your rights, and what are the rights of your employer? We'll answer those questions for you next on Your Day in Court here on Extra 106.3. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save. And save and win. Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacey's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. 
And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. This is your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 1063. In the final segment on your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice, we're going to talk about uh, workers' comp claims. What is the employee responsible for, and what is the employee, and what is the employer responsible for? We'll discuss that in a minute, and I'll also tell you how you can get in touch with Bruce and Ray if you need legal expertise. Who wants to start, and where do you want to start? Well, let me just jump in here. Workers' comp is a different animal. Uh, I do personal injury cases. You know, these are negligence claims. People have medical expenses. They've lost wages. They have the intangible element of pain and suffering, right, Mm -hmm. for for all of the human things that they've suffered. They might have future pain and suffering, all that. In a workers' comp case, it's very strictly regulated, created by law about what your rights are. Most people who were injured on the job don't have a claim that really requires a lawyer to get involved. They should still speak to a workers' comp lawyer. They should find out what their rights are. But for the most part, if you're missing time from work because you're physically unable to do the job and the employer is paying you two-thirds of your average weekly wage up to a certain maximum, which changes periodically. Last I checked, it was like five fifty a week. If they're paying you your average weekly wage, then they're fulfilling their obligation. If they're providing you with access to doctors and paying for those doctor's visits, they're fulfilling your obligation. And then as you get to the end of your care, if you have any kind of partial impairment or permanent impairment, then there's a schedule that sort of maps out what you're supposed to get or entitled to get as a result of that. So the cases where people really need a lawyer's help is is where the employer is not doing some of those things or there's a need for extensive future medical care and there's an opportunity to, for the employer and the employer to say like why don't we just try to resolve this now for a specific amount of money and we won't have to pay any of your future medical care you're on your own for that Got so it. most people you should always talk to a lawyer call me or ray we'll put you in touch with the best workers comp lawyers we know but whether or not you actually need to retain one becomes a, a totally different question and these guys will tell you because they don't want to waste they your really time don't want the small cases anyway most of the better workers comp lawyers and what i mean by that is if you didn't have surgery or you don't have a, a long-term permanent partial disability rating by a good orthopedic doctor because uh, that's where the money is or if you're not getting screwed by your employer overpaying your average weekly wage because, because there's penalties there's penalties and so and so an attorney can file a claim for you and if they get that reinstated there's statutory attorney's fees that come out of that and so there are a lot of lawyers we know who get checks for like fifty dollars a week from uh, workers comp insurers hundreds of them but they right. get hundreds yeah, of them yeah. you know <laughs> And they take a little piece. So uh, as an employer, Georgia law is three or more employees. It's sort of defined as employees who are under the what's quoted as dominion and control of the employer. In other words, you may have a contract with your quote unquote, you're not really an employee, you're an independent subcontractor. But if the business gives you the tools, the clients, 
the map where to go to deliver the goods, puts the gas in the truck, you're, an you're under their dominion and yeah. control. So you're yeah. an employee as interpreted. Uh, if they don't have workers' comp insurance and the employee is hurt on the job, then they're, they're self-insured now. They're going to get the medical bill. But the reason that the system is so highly regulated and puts caps on damages and, re- and rewards or compensation is that the f- issue of fault is essentially taken out of or in, or punitive negligence. In other words, if you're hurt on the job because you fell and tripped over the invisible piece of tape, it, you still have a worker's comp claim. You're hurt on the job in a curtilage, meaning from here we're at the 680 Fan Studio. Once you get outside that sidewalk, you're probably outside of David Dickey's curtilage unless you're one of the sales cats and you're going on a sales call. Or if you are uh, doing a live remote, a live like remote. from Colony Square, like uh, the guys were doing this week, and, and you're driving to the job because you're on, on the a clock, direct route. On a direct route. So, so you can have a worker's comp claim and, and a mm-hmm. liability claim at the same time. And it comes up, for example, let's say you're doing a live remote and you're at a restaurant. And while you're at the restaurant, you slip and fall and get injured. But the reason you slipped and fell is because the restaurant failed to clean up some sort of a spill that they should have known about and should have cleaned up and and didn't. And so you have a workers comp claim because you were in the course and scope of your employment when you were injured. But you also have potentially a negligence claim against the negligent actor of this business that failed to clean up the the ice cream. It's been you there know, for 12 hours. The, banana, duty, right? the dirty so, so. banana peel, that's sort of the law <laughs> right. school example. If someone slipped on a banana peel at the, at the supermarket. Was it fresh and clean and just fell, therefore the supermarket didn't have a chance to correct the problem? Or was it mushy and dark and gritty and been there for 12 hours and they should have cleaned it up? About foreseeability. Summary, right? We talked about summary judgment earlier mm-hmm. and, and some of the facts you need. And I had a case against a mall where somebody slipped in ice cream and we had no way of knowing how long the ice cream had been on the ground, except that we said... It was melted. Yeah, right. and, and so it's like, well, it was melted ice cream. And you know what stores in your mall, sir, sell melted ice cream? So we had at least a An fact argument. that if it had been proven in our favor, would get us past summary judgment. Exactly right. right? E- even though, well, how do you know the ice cream didn't melt in the cup before somebody then spilled it in? It might have been spilled for only 30 seconds, and we couldn't have had the opportunity to. Yep. In a workers' comp world, the employer must have what's called a posted panel of physicians. That's usually a bright orange poster-sized document that's usually in the wash room or in the coffee area where all the employees or the locker room where people change their into the uniforms and it's got a list of at least five providers that you if you're hurt on a job you can go to immediately without seeking permission or making an appointment and the employer must pay if you're unhappy with one of the doctors or providers on the posted panel you're entitled at the employer's insurance company's workers comp coverage insurance expense to get one second opinion and I always recommend folks get that second opinion outside of the posted panel Panel. Generally, the posted panels tend to be clinics, meaning high-volume medical facilities, the dock in a box. Nothing wrong with any of that, but they may not be, you know, your orthopedic specialist down at Petri right. Orthopedics. Right. My that opinion representing people and not insurance companies is that the doctors who are on those panels will always go out of their way to find that you're not hurt. Get back to work. Or that you're able to return to work because the minute they start advocating for their patients, they get replaced by somebody else on the panel. They won't and, do it. and they're no longer they the, tend the to doctor be a little, of choice. A little conservative. 
you're so, seven days or more out of work before you can get benefits, meaning meaning uh, as wage supplement. You're also entitled to mileage to and from the doctor's parking expense. So when when you have, I get occasionally, I represent somebody in a comp case. And I say, you have to keep good records. It's your job to keep good records. And then if they don't pay within 30 days of submitting those, then there are penalties involved. So it's a very regulated, as opposed to an auto accident case, which is kind of wild, actually. It is. You know? so, so the one overriding message, I think, for both Ray and myself is if you get injured on the job, call a workers' there comp lawyer, find somebody who only handles workers' comp, and if you need help finding one, check with me or Ray, and we'll guide you to somebody this, who only does workers' comp because there are folks who know this and do it every single day, all day long, and that's the kind of lawyer you want to handle. And, a, and the second thing is, if you are an employer, small time, big time, you should get the workers' comp insurance. If you're having somebody work on your house, a roofer, make sure the roofer has workers' compensation insurance for his employees. Otherwise, you, the homeowner, may be on the hook when somebody falls off the roof and gets hurt on that job. Nobody wants that. In case people do have questions, like you just suggested, Bruce, how do they get you? 404-522-7553. That number works 24-7. You can email me, Bruce, at Hagen-Law.com. Hit me up on Twitter at Peeps Lawyer. Like uh, Tug said earlier, if there are questions or topics you would like to see us address on a future show, Send us a message on Twitter, and we will absolutely get to it. There you go, Ray. Ray Judice, Attorney at Law, 404-964-4185. And I love the fact that Mrs. Hagen asked us a question. She's apparently not getting enough law at home, Bruce. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> look By the that. way, uh, <laughs> the, some of the prospective jurors asked the exact same question uh, during jury selection and were disqualified from the panel Interesting. Uh, for, for wow. those questions. How about so, that? Uh, it's, it, Tug was exactly right that if Mrs. H is asking that question, chances are other people are wondering the same thing. Seems likely. Seems like. This is your day in court with renowned lawyers Bruce Hagen and Ray Judice. If you need their help, they give you the numbers, or you can find them on the web. Just do a quick search. You will definitely find the best in the business, and that's why they're on this show. Your day in court on Extra 106.3. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save, and save and win. Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacey's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. Spring is here and baseball is back. You can't forget the Derby. I love the hats. Do you have yours yet? My hat? I 
treated myself to a whole outfit. If you want to be able to treat yourself, then you should check out the Nest Savings Account at LGE Community Credit Union, where they want you to reach your savings goals faster. Take it from a pair of 680 The Fan wives. Head to lgeccu.org to find out what makes their team number one in Georgia.